please remain standing and either look at the handout or open your Bible to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verses 1 through 27. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, and that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. Whom your eyes have seen, do not go hastily to court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor, and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame, and your reputation be ruined. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver, like an earring of gold on an ornament of fine gold, is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow in a time in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. It is not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not glory. You may be seated. All right, a reminder, I have the outline. You know, we looked at, we spent a lot of time in Collection 1, chapters 1 through 9, it's for the youth. Collection 2, the 375 Proverbs of Solomon, you can call it Solomon Part 1, that focuses on the young man or the adult, it's 12 and a half chapters, long chunk, we went through a lot of stuff in there, and uh, my hope is to give you an outline at the end that has at least much detail there, as you see in other sections. Collection 3 is the 30 sayings of the wise, we went through that short two chapters, but it's 
uh, collecting together in sort of a weighty and short way that captures a lot of what's in collection two and helps to make it sort of a summarized thing. When you've got the longer instruction, the shorter ones help you to be able to focus in and to be able, by going over that shorter section, be able to pull out a lot of the wisdom that you get from the longer section, having already received it. Collection four serves as sort of the transition text from just the young man or adult into leadership. It's a half chapter, and it's further sayings of the wise, but we looked at it and we saw how it deals with leadership issues. <coughs> Collection five that we're in right now is the second section on Solomon. It's the, it's the Proverbs of Solomon that Hezekiah's men put together. And so we have five chapters there. It is focused on leadership, on being the father, being the head of house, being somebody who's in a position of authority. And I talked to you about how it's especially focused on sort of the courtier, the, the person who's in the court of the king, but not necessarily the king. There's stuff for the king in there, but it's also it's really heavily focused upon middle management. And so this idea of being middle management and having to deal with superiors above and having to deal with people who are under your authority, it deals with those issues. So I provided an outline of how it's broken out here. We're going to not even make it through chapter 25 really today. Um, but part one, you have in the very beginning of chapter 25, we're introduced to these, uh, these five chapters of of material that is from Solomon and organized by Hezekiah as a prophet king. And we then have chapter 25, verses 2 through 27, um, is talking about the conflict between the righteous and the wicked in the halls of power. Uh, when we get past that, there's a neat section that has seven types of corrupt people, and I've got the list there for you. Uh, and so I think we'll have a grand old time looking at that. Um, there's a chunk on friendship that follows and friends. And then there's a neat little poem on managing capital wealth. And so we, we get into the second part of this big chunk. And it is struck, the whole thing is 33 proverbs that are written as antithetical parallelisms. Or you have, you know, A, non-A, and they're contrasted. Okay, so you just, you have 33 of those. And so that section there, it's, it's organized, and I've, I've written out for you how I understand the structure. So you have, a, uh, you have a center proverb at 29 verse 1, and so you, you can see there the outline I've given you, and they'll fill that out further as we're going along, but that's the structure of that chunk. So you can see what this collection looks like before we get there. And then a reminder, collections six and seven are both one chapter, and they're focused on leadership. They're focused on um, you know, dealing with the difficulties of leadership, and they are shorter, and they have poignant, powerful sections, um, and the literary style of them is very different from the other collections. So we'll talk about that when we get there. But again, so we're in collection five, and um, go to page three. So, verse 1, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. We talked about that last time. We talked about the liberal textual critics who want to make the Old Testament into a Hezekiah propaganda tool. Um, so, 
verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. Okay, so we have the glory of God. We have the glory of kings. So, like, what's the purpose of a king's life? A king's life is to seek out the things that God has hidden. And that's true for kings. Is that true for lesser mortals? And aren't we all prophet, priest, kings? So, shouldn't we all be seeking to find out the matters? So, God has truth. He's revealed. He gives information, puts it in a hiding place, but makes it findable. Now, if you're ever setting up a treasure hunt for children, you know if you make it too hard, they're not going to find it. That thing goes rotten. The thing gets lost. If you set up a treasure hunt for children, you have to make the treasures findable. God is better at that than parents are. He knows how to set them up, and he knows how to set them up as sort of leading to each other. And so what he does is he tells us truths, and he gives us commandments, and as we believe those truths and obey those commandments, we start to see more truths, and we start to see more applications. And so there is this way in which there is a, a treasure map given to us in the Word. In Proverbs, we've seen as an example of that. Proverbs has more easily understandable parts and less easily understandable parts. It has simpler structures and more complex structures. The simple structures help you to see the more complex structures. And so as you deal with them, he unveils more and more. You go further in and farther up. You keep going and you find more and more and it opens to you. Now, if you jump to the last page, I remind you, Verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not glory. Okay, what we have here is a reminder that first, feasting on wisdom is to be contrasted with feasting on uh, delicate foods or delicacies, delicacy foods. You can never have too much of wisdom, but you can, and often some do, eat too much of the delicacies of the honey. Seeking your own glory versus seeking to glorify God, right? Growing in the knowledge of God glorifies God. Acting on that knowledge brings honor. But glory seeking brings dishonor. If you think of somebody as a vain glory seeker, that's not a compliment. When you say, yeah, that guy's all about his own glory. So good food and honor are both good gifts. They're insufficient as ultimate things. They're not the good. So, Come back with me to page three. What we have is a setup in the next verse. So verse two and verse twenty-seven, those are the that's the introduction and the conclusion to the section. Okay? So we get into verse three. We're talking about remember we talked about how there are sections that are sayings or indicatives, and there's other sections that are that are admonitions or their imperatives, their commands. So we have this first saying section. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. What we have here in from Proverbs 2 to Proverbs 5 
is we see God, his servant, the king, subjects that are under the king, and the struggle, the struggle for the court to be righteous. You can have a righteous king, or you can have a wicked king, but his counselors will have a dramatic impact on the rule of that king. A righteous king who's poorly advised will not be much better than an unrighteous king. And an unrighteous king who's well advised can often, in effect, rule basically like a righteous king. And so there's this concern, yeah, the king matters, the magistrate matters, the highest officer matters, but so do the cabinet officials. So do the courtiers. A house, the, the father of a house matters. So does the wife, and so do especially the older children and how they deal with things. So do servants. What do they do? What impact will they have? What influence do they have? So, because in verse 3, we're told that the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. What we have is kings are looking to find hidden information. They often make their own thoughts unknown on purpose. But they listen. There's a listening. And so, you find the more authority you have, the more you're trying to get information to figure out what to do, and you run out of time to try to persuade other people to get on board with whatever it is you're thinking, and you pull information in to make decisions within the limits of time. That's one of the problems with centralized authority, especially in the state, is the impossibility of making good decisions about too many things. So decentralization happens whether people want it to or not. Tyrants can try to have every possible minimal decision be made by them, but the reality is there's too many things to decide, and the throughput of decisions cannot go faster than it can go. And so, whatever you're trying to do, there are limits on power. So because kings listen, their counselors are very important. And this sets up the battle for the halls of power, the battle for the court of the king. This is the battle, the conflict, in the court hierarchy of the righteous and the wicked. And think about how important this is. If you've read Genesis, you know about Joseph and what he did with a pagan pharaoh. If you've read Daniel, you know what he did with emperor after emperor. You can find Mordecai in Esther. You find these godly men in the court of the king. And they have a struggle. And their struggle is to see righteousness done and to deal with the wicked who are present there. So what we're going to get now is what Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Proverbs calls a decalogue for courtiers. Right, sort of ten words that are useful if you're in middle management. How to win the fight for the court of the king. These are tools of dominion. If you're a wife, a courtier, a steward, a manager, or anybody who hopes to manage anything ever, and you have to deal with some sort of authority over you. So, verses 6 and 7. We're starting with a section on admonitions. It says, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, 
than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. Okay, so humility is going to help you to advance. Humility will advance your reputation faster than pride. It's going to make it so that things go well. We talked about that last time, the idea that you know it's double honoring if you're called up, and it's double dishonoring if you're kind of pushed down. And so this idea there. Now, uh, point two, prepare before taking a matter to a higher authority. Um, the way this is normally done, right, look, look at the end there, whom your eyes have seen. You can also translate that, what your eyes have seen. Um, that's normally attached on uh, as a part of verse 7. Um, Bruce Waltke argues and persuaded me uh, that it is a, a part of really the next chunk. So it's a better, the versification is not inspired, right? So we have to deal with uh, the, the, the text itself. So he argues that what's being said there is really you know, what your eyes have seen, don't take it hastily to a lawsuit. Don't take it hastily to contend with it. So when you receive information, you get news, you need to stop and think and prepare to deal with that information, even if it's information that requires a conflict. The third principle, for what you will do in the end, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Right, there's, a, there's a danger to exposing information and picking a fight because you can lose. And so there's this value to confidentiality. Even when you see somebody else do something wrong and you have information about it, there's a danger that it results in shame for you when you go into public conflict about it. Right, so why, that's why you tell kids, don't be a tattletale. Because you, you're trying to get them, look, don't just be quick to go pick every fight that you possibly can. Don't take everything that you possibly could to your parents. Try to figure out how to deal with conflict. These principles apply well for them, and they're not really in middle management. Depends, I guess, on how young some of your kids are. Verse 9. Debate your case with your neighbor, and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame, and your reputation be ruined. Um, you could alternately translate that last part, um, and the evil report concerning you not pass away. In other words, if you seek to resolve matters at the lowest level and the least public level possible, then your conflicts and any imperfect things that you've done, or even just lies that other people make up, you ever had a situation where somebody lies about you and it sticks? Now you can get into a conflict. Somebody can, you, can, you can have your nose clean and the other guy just lies and it sticks. So there's a, a danger there and so you have this desire. You want to seek to resolve matters at the lowest level and least public level possible when you can without sinning or without giving up some, something you have a duty to deal with. Or you, you might evaluate it and find that there's so, so much at risk or so much at stake, so important that you have to proceed, but you, you stop and you think about the importance of it. And so you try to debate your case with your neighbor and don't disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. Right? There's negative reports about the conflict. I've had times where I've had a dispute with somebody about doctrine or whatever, and you had this document, and the document... I go, you know, here's the other person, what they wrote, and here's what I wrote. And I go, see, clear as day, they're in heresy. And the other person goes, seems like you were being mean. I go, but yeah, but what about the doctrinal point? 
And they go, well, you know, maybe if you'd done it better or whatever. And you go, how is this the thing? How is this the way this has gone? And it does. Happens a lot. Happens a lot. So, seeking to resolve matters at the lowest level and least public level possible helps to avoid those losses. Now, sometimes you just got to do those things. Public doctrinal disputes. I teach heresy from here. You can't just deal with that. We can't just sweep it under the rug, right? You got to deal with it. So, what are the fights that you have to fight versus the ones that you can choose? And the ones that you choose, you have to count the cost. All right. Now we're moving to the fifth saying. And it's moving from uh, admonitions or commands into statements or sayings, okay, the indicative. So the fifth saying, appropriate speech builds your reputation. That's what I'm saying it basically says. Okay. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Right? You speak a good word at a good time. The result is, it's like this beautiful thing. And people go, wow, you made that. You made that beautiful thing. So there's a, a powerful ability to improve your own reputation by having right words for right times. And so, you know, the best way to have that is to have wisdom sort up. So that when there's an issue, you have the right thing to say. So store up the word of God in your heart. And you will have opportunities to display apples of gold in settings of silver. Which will bring glory to God, honor to your own reputation, and it will be useful for other people. Six. Acceptable reproof for the wise will be good for both the rebuker and the rebuked. So verse 12. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. So this, this is a principle... And you go, okay, a wise rebuker is like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold. That's true for everybody? Does everybody see a wise rebuker as a golden object? No, but to the wise, to the obedient hearer, it is. The rebuke is a gift to the person who wants to do what God commands. And so, this teaches us something about the wise, and that is, we can talk to the wise, we can rebuke the wise, and expect that they're actually going to value us more. And so, the idea that when you're in a place, when you're in the halls of power, if you find other wise people who value when you share wisdom to rebuke them, you're going to build alliances there. I was told that Surinder Gangadine would say to people, friends are not made, they're found. There's a lot of truth there. You can't make them, you can't create them. You apply the law of God and you see how people react to it. And there's a revealing of the types of souls that people have. They give evidence to show you, are they committed to the glory of God or not? If they are committed to the glory of God, then things like rebukes towards them, when they hear a rebuke that is true, 
they're going to go, wow, that's good stuff. Thank you. On the other side, we're told elsewhere that if you cast holy things before swine, dogs, to the danger of trampling, danger of rending, fools will respond to rebuke badly. And so you have to be careful there. So you send up test balloons. You look for things before you go all out on some harsh rebuke that's necessary with a person where you think they might be able to cause you great harm after the rebuke. You do things to test what kind of a person is this. Sort of like putting your foot out on the ice before putting all of your weight on it. Being careful until you get a sense that this ice will hold you. There's a care there. And when you're in the halls of power, there are a lot of dangerous people who can react very strongly and become an enemy. It's implacable. Saying seven. Reliability gains reputation and makes your superiors better. They like you more, and it makes them better. Okay, let me let's look at that. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. Right, harvest time, you got wheat coming in. Wheat is the, the later harvest. Wheat is more durable than other grains. It can deal with variations in temperature and variations in water level better than any other grain. That's why wheat is so wonderful as a gift from God. And so when we have wheat and you deal with that and you deal with the late harvest, there can be snow. And it's not a danger to the damaging of the crop because you're in the harvest time. The issue is it is nice for the laborers in the field because they're working hard and it's hot and a little bit of cold when you're working hard and feel very hot is sort of like air conditioning. You might say, like air conditioning in Phoenix, Arizona during 80% of the year is a faithful messenger to those who send him for he refreshes the soul of his masters. So this is the idea that there's a just as cool helps when you are working hard a faithful messenger somebody who receives instruction receives a message takes the message, takes the instruction and is faithful with it that refreshes the soul of a master so the person in authority is refreshed by that they feel better, they are grateful for the person who is faithful with that instruction but they are also refreshed which means they are given strength by it which means they are better able to do other things. So if you are surrounded, think about this as a lesson for considering as you give out authority. right? If you have faithful people taking that instruction, taking messages, doing things for you, the way that there's an encouragement, accomplishing things helps things to be accomplished. There's a cascading. When you do something and get it done, it helps you to have strength to get the next thing done. And so this idea of getting things done, helping to get more things done, getting easy wins, going after the low-hanging fruit, right, these, are, these are management principles. But if somebody under authority is faithful to the one who sends him, 
It brings refreshment to the soul of the one in authority. It makes them stronger, makes them feel better, helps to accomplish more. So one thing that I think we're all tempted toward is when there's somebody in authority over us, we're tempted to think, I don't want to do this thing. Even if I do my part, he's not going to do what he's supposed to do. He's not, supposed to, he's not going to accomplish it, not going to get it done. This doesn't really matter. When you're not faithful with things that are assigned to you by a person in authority, it's a discouragement to them too. If you are faithful and you get it done, it's an encouragement to the person in authority and it helps that person to then be able to further follow through. Now, they can still fail. But this is the way, this is the virtuous cycle, the self-feeding, the benefits of those things. And you may find, if you're faithful with little, that you're entrusted with more, which might give you more ability to solve more problems and have less that you're concerned about the person who's above you failing to do. All right, saying eight, you've all heard under-promise, over-deliver, easier said than done. Verse 14 is the biblical version of that. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. You give all the signs of something good's going to come, rain, right? You don't give it. So then you're a disappointment, right? That's the idea. Saying nine, patience and loyal endurance with the one in power wins a ruler. Okay, verse 15, by long forbearance a ruler is persuaded. A long forbearance, the ruler is persuaded. The book of First Peter spends a lot of time on this idea. If you read, especially chapters 2 and 3, First Peter talks about dealing with kings. It talks about people who are servants. It talks about masters. It talks about wives. It talks about husbands. And it has the famous phrase for wives. The famous phrase is, the idea of winning the husband without a word. And the winning of the husband without the word is another way of saying show patience, show forbearance, endure in loyalty, and the one in authority will be persuaded. So patience and loyal endurance with the one in power wins a ruler. That's how you win a ruler. Does it always work 100% of the time? No. This is the general tendency of things. And so, there are portions of the scripture that help us to deal with covenant-breaking authorities, but this is the general way that things work. And so, whether you're dealing with a boss, whether you're dealing with a husband, whether you're dealing with anybody in authority over you, by long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded. As a saying, 10, tactful light criticism is powerful for those in power. Okay? A gentle tongue breaks a bone. You can give a criticism as long as it's clear in a gentle way. And in fact, if it's gentler, but still very clear, it is very powerful on those who are over you authority most of the time. So somebody comes to an authority, rants and raves, the response of the authority 
harden themselves, deal with this, get this under control. Somebody who's under authority comes to the authority and gently, lightly, but clearly gives the criticism. It's like some kung fu movie where somebody comes up and flicks and then all the rib cage is shattered. There's this, the gentleness of it causes it to be thought about, causes it to be taken as more sincere, causes it to be viewed as more thoughtful. And so there's this pausing on it and this way in which that gets under the skin of authorities. They are used to dealing with conflict and can put up a shield. It's the gentle criticisms that get under their skin. Because they're thoughtful and calm. A gentle tongue breaks a bone. What a powerful little statement. Gentle tongue breaks a bone. Now, somehow I'm ahead of schedule for the first time in my entire preaching career ever. So I guess I'm going to keep going. We get to the second part of the chapter. And uh, I've labeled that wrong. Sorry, it should be... uh, 25, as opposed to 26 there. But uh, 25, 16 through 26. What we have is this discussion about human conflicts. This is continuing on in this broader section about the battle for the, the, the halls of power. And when you get to the very end, verse 27 again, that's the conclusion, and it ties back to the very first statement, verse 2. So... We continue to have this revolving through admonitions and sayings. And so this resolving of conflict, it starts out, verse 16, it says, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. So there's two things here. One is, there's a contrast with the knowledge of God that's implicit with food, with pleasures, with physical pleasures. There's a limit on it. If you, if you pursue a physical pleasure too much, it will make it so that you're physically unwell. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Now the word need is a great word to make economists and philosophers talk forever. How much honey do you need? The question is not so much how much you need for some sort of absolute sense, but the idea is take as much as is useful at a certain point at which there's a decline in utility. The decline in utility comes when you actually go from enjoying it to it causing sickness, causing pain. And so there are limits on what's consumed And this is important because there are limits on material goods that are available in the market at any given time. And so moderation here helps you to avoid breaking the bank. And one of the dangers for courtiers is if you are in a prominent position, there's a desire to impress 
to entertain, to keep up with the, in this case, it would be maybe the, the Mishmosheths, I don't know. Right, so we, we have this desire to keep up with other people. And so, have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. So there's this harm that comes from you, comes to you if you overindulge. There's also seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and you and hate you. Right? There's there's a there's a straightforward proverb if ever there were one. This idea that you you limit how much you impose on other people's hospitality and time and space and resources. And so that is also about the limitations on the resources that are available and the way in which you can create bitterness by being uh, one who draws too much on the time or resources of another. And so these are things that are both saying other people are not the good, their hospitality is not the good, Good food is not the good. These are things that if you lean on them too much, it can undermine you, it can harm your reputation, it can make it so that you are not advancing in the conflict against those who are wicked, but instead it can be a source of conflict over limited resources, over the misuse of resources, and over taking things that other people feel a right to. Those are strife-inducing things. If you overindulge, and if you step into somebody else's domain too much, those are things that create strife. Have you ever seen anybody in your life who, even though they were using their resources, their property, their misusing of it resulted in you or someone around you to complain about the misuse of their stuff? Ever, never happened? Never, never had those thoughts? So that right there is why this fits into the idea of the, the, the conflict over the halls of power. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. So then we move into sayings, and these are continuing in the uh, resolving of conflict consideration. And so this resolving of conflict section has admonitions, sayings, and it ends out with more admonitions. Uh, so, verses 18 through 20, these are, these are sayings, these are indicatives. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, and like vinegar on soda, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So what we're being taught here in these sayings, we're being taught to think about how should we evaluate false witnesses? How should we evaluate the people around us that we're ready to rely upon in times of trouble? And how should we evaluate putting things in their proper place? When should we use what tool? The book of James says, if you are joyful, you should sing a song. But if you sing a song to a heavy heart, it's grating. You ever been miserable and been around somebody who's not? That's miserable inducing, misery inducing, right? You go, I'm miserable. What are you so happy about? 
the happiness of others, the rejoicing of others, when you are miserable, there's a temptation to envy that, to be angry about it, to feel like it's out of place. This is a revealing statement about human psychology. So, verse 18, bearing false witness against a neighbor is like attacking a neighbor with a club, with a sword, or with a sharp arrow. Now, that can be the destruction of property. It can be the destruction through you know, fraud or through false testimony, through a vexatious lawsuit. It can be a, a way in which reputation is harmed by false testimony. It can be the way that false testimony is used to try to bring about criminal penalties. Right? You, you use your mouth as the means to murder a person. If you say, I saw this guy murder somebody else. Well, penalty for murder? Execution. Okay, you bear testimony against that person. You're trying to kill that person. You're trying to kill that person. It's like taking a club or sword or an arrow and attacking them. So that's a very close connection. And you move out to things like like reputation and property. Verse 19, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. You can't, in a time of trouble, you can't respond real well if your foot's out of joint. You can't move very quickly. You can't get much done. Somebody's attacking you. Your foot's out of joint. You're not going to be able to respond really well. The house is on fire. You're you're not going to be able to respond very well with your foot out of joint. Now, if it's just a bad tooth, then it's just going to be a problem. It's going to be annoying, but it's not going to stop you from being able to do anything. But if you, it depends on the task that you have confidence in the man for. <clears throat> if you have an unfaithful man and you have confidence in him and he has a small domain or an unimportant domain, then it's just going to be painful, like a bad tooth. If he has an important domain then it's going to be like you can't use your foot. And so the point is, toothaches are not fun. The foot out of joint is not only not fun, but could be disastrous. And so the question is, when you have people around you who are unfaithful, people who are given authority, given responsibility, and you rely upon them, and they're not faithful, how's that going to play out in a time of trouble? Not well. So this is an encouragement to kings and to courtiers to be careful to remove unfaithful people from being around them when you're not in trouble. And so that goes back to the beginning of the chapter. What does the beginning of the chapter say? What's the sort of introductory statement? Well, we're told that kings are... Their glory is in seeking out the hidden things, that God hides things, that's the glory of kings to find them. And then we move into the advisors and the king being inscrutable and listening. And we get into verse 4 and it says, Take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from being the king. Sorry, take away the wicked from before the king. 
and his throne will be established in righteousness. There's the importance of taking away the wicked. It helps the throne to be established in righteousness. And so we have that idea that the wicked are unfaithful men. You should not have confidence in them. And if you do have confidence in them in a time of trouble, that will result in pain or ineffectiveness. And so that ineffectiveness is something that by caring about the refining of the court, the battle for the king's court, it helps the king to be ready for a time of trouble. Verse 20, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You're cold and somebody takes away the thing that's keeping you warm? Startling. Anger-inducing. You put vinegar on soda and it bubbles, it fizzes, it bubbles up like anger, annoyance, frustration. If somebody is in mourning, what does Romans teach us? It says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. If you want to know how to work well with other people, you have to understand when to apply which thing. And that makes it so that you can be effective at dealing with other people. That's a priestly type of skill. So what we have in this section, and the, the, the courtiers are being given a lot of lessons in priestliness, how to deal with relationship. And priestliness makes it so you can team build, and so you can maintain team, and cooperate with other people in a team. So we get to 21 and 22, and we have admonitions again about resolving conflict. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That might make him who's not your enemy anymore. But if that doesn't work, it's okay. That is a very powerful technique called getting God to destroy your enemies. Right? That's what the next verse says. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You also get an upgrade pack. They either don't act like your enemies anymore. If they do act like your enemies, God will destroy them and he'll reward you. That's the way it works. This is a thing that's been revealed to us about the nature of reality. That's what God does. So we get to verse 23. Now, this last section here, okay, I've titled it for you, Tools, Targets, Techniques, and Traps in Conflict. It's in an alliterative mood. And you get the benefit. Verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. So a backbiting tongue brings about an angry countenance. Now backbiting, you could view that in two ways. You could view it as inherently sinful or you could view it as sort of like speaking back. There are times when speaking back is not wrong. If by backbiting we mean this sort of angry, wrongful attacking against somebody you owe honor to, okay, that's wrong. But if this is speaking back against in a negative way, there are times for that. And that generally gets an angry response. Now, that should be obvious, but sometimes we we act like we don't expect it. And so, this is something that we should meditate on and realize if we're trying to not get an angry response. We need to prevent ourselves from doing that and giving a backbiting response. 
But we also, if we are trying to make somebody angry, should recognize that this is how that tool works. Are there ever times when you're engaging with the wicked when it would be useful for them to become angry? For example, do we see King David taunting Saul at all? Not Saul, forgive me. Goliath. Do we see King David taunting Goliath at all when he's going out to combat with him? Do you see in any other parts of righteous warfare the godly figure taunting the enemy? So if you want your enemy to become angry, this is a tool. Might not always work. Sometimes it does. So understanding how that works. Verse 24, it's better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. This is a target. If you are trying to deal with reducing conflict around you and making it so that your household can function well, the number one relationship that you need to make sure is going well so that life can be joyful and you can be effective as a team is making sure that you're working well with your wife and if your wife is contentious to work through dealing with the removal of that vice. Verse 25. The cold water to a weary soul so is good news from a far country. This is a tool for giving strength. The good news that comes from far away. Lots of movies use this technique. And you just have the out of nowhere, from far away, great things come and solve the problem. And there's much rejoicing. And some people enjoy their move. On the other side, in real life, if you are weary, good news that comes unexpectedly. It refreshes. It gives strength. It gives staying power. So one of the things we need to do when we see each other weary is remind each other of truths. And we have good news from heaven. We have the gospel. We have truths that have been given to us by God. We have at our fingertips, ready to go, words of encouragement to help each other with weariness. Having the truth in your heart, having the word of God ready to give to each other when we find each other weary is a way of encouraging each other. But also, if there's a problem and you have good news, positive news about that problem and how it's getting better, that's obviously also going to restore. And so, be quick to give good news to help those who are weary. Verse 26, So that's a a tool. You think about that on the opposite side, by the way, if you're talking about... uh, good news for somebody when you're dealing with the wicked and they have good news keeping that information from them would help to avoid them being encouraged so one of the things in warfare is often to keep things secret and you avoid sharing certain information and so that's designed to help to avoid giving morale boosts to the enemy verse 26 a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Okay, a polluted well is a well that is not useful. You're not going to drink from it. 
might not be aware, but in Hezekiah's day, they didn't have Berkey systems, so they couldn't filter out the junk very easily. And so if that's the case, a polluted well is a bigger problem then than it is now. A polluted well is not useful as a well. You have water that's useless. A murky spring, you, you, you want the spring because you go, oh, this is moving water, it's going to be fresh, it's going to be clean, it's going to be good, and you get the water out of it, and it just looks filthy. In both cases, you're expecting to get water for refreshment, water to sustain yourself, and you're disappointed. And it's useless. That's what a righteous man who doesn't stand up to the wicked, that's what he's like. You expect the righteous to stand against the wicked and say no. You expect the righteous to stand and refuse wickedness be done. And that's one of the useful things about righteous men is they say no to evil. But when the righteous man falters, he's not useful and he's a disappointment. And so the obligation that we have, the obligation that we have is to stand firm against the wicked. So we can be like clear springs and like clean wells that provide refreshment, nourishment, and people get the good they're expecting. We make a profession of faith and we don't stand against the wickedness. Somebody does wickedness in front of you and you don't do anything about it. Somebody's trying to do wickedness towards somebody else and you don't do anything about it. It's faltering before the wicked. When you read about the rise of David and his initial conflict with Goliath, for example, one of the things that's going on is you have Saul, I'm saying Saul, you have Goliath coming out and he stands before the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel, and he's mocking Israel, and he's saying, anybody going to fight me? Anybody willing to fight me? Just day after day, is coming out and challenging, and the cowering of the men of Israel, the faltering of the righteous, it makes it so that rather than the head or the tail, it makes it so they're trampled. There's no saltiness. Not good for anything except to be trampled at her feet. David comes out. He's bold as a lion. He challenges Goliath. And he puts forward that because he has the God of Jacob on his side, he will win. He doesn't rely upon the armor of Saul. He doesn't rely upon the equipment. He doesn't rely upon the things he's not trained with and ready to use. He uses the weaponry, the equipment that he is accustomed to, that he is trained with, and he engages in battle. He does not falter before the wicked. And what you see later on, when you read about David, it says that God took all of his enemies and subdued them under his feet. He subdued David's enemies under his feet. The boldness of righteous men standing against the wicked and not faltering is extremely important in the battle for the halls of power. And when the righteous 
cower. You have things like what happened in Louisiana. You know, we have the work of the guys at Apologia. The pastors at Apologia did all this work to get in Louisiana a bill put forward that was going to provide equal protection under the law of people from conception to death. The pro-life establishment killed it. And the Republican majority there pulled that bill back. They pulled that bill back in this national news. You can find it, Google this online about the equal protection law in Louisiana and how it got pulled back. There was a cowering. There was a faltering of the righteous. Many people who claimed to believe in equal protection just failing. And so you have righteous faltering before the wicked. You lose opportunities. Much is harmed. Much is lost in that faltering. If you seek out with your position of power, pleasure and glory, rather than seeking the glory of God and seeking to know the truth and to apply it, that tends towards faltering. I want to keep my position. I want to win re-election. I want to keep getting money from the pro-life establishment. I want to make sure that I'm here for the future. It's not good to eat much honey. So to seek one's own glory is not glory. If you have power, if you're in a position of authority, you use it not for your own glory, not for the pleasure that you can acquire by your station, but you use it for the glory of God. And the habit of being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake helps you to be useful and to not be one who falters before the wicked. So I encourage you, with whatever authority, whatever power you've been given now, when you're challenged by the wicked, to fight and win now. With whatever little the Lord has given to you. So if in later days he gives you more, you will not falter before the wicked. You'll stand. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, those with speaking rights. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause the righteous to be brave. We ask that you would bless the work of the pastors at Apologia and their efforts to see uh, the equal protection of the unborn given. We ask that you would cause the church to be bold on this issue and to be bold about the truth. We ask that you would cause righteousness to be done in the land, wickedness to be overthrown. You would help us to know how to fight well in the halls of power, how to work well with others, how to rise in authority, how to use the authority we have well. I pray that you would cause us to be able to use what we have just considered here in the Proverbs of Solomon, organized by Hezekiah's men, to know how to use power well while under the power of others. We pray this in Christ's name.